Welcome to Life on the Other Side, stories from prisoners, their families, and those helping them find justice and redemption with Alec Klein. This podcast is sponsored by Republic Book Publishers, which brings you books tackling the important issues of the day and the new book Aftermath, When It Felt Like Life Was Over by Alec Klein. For more information, please check out republicbookpublishers.com. In this episode, we hear from Lynn Christofferson, whose ex-husband, Dave Woodward, was convicted of first-degree murder and was sentenced to life in prison before he was later released on probation. Thanks for joining us, Lynn. It's quite good to be here. So tell us about your life before all of this. But what was going on? What was going on? I was serving as a deacon in the Episcopal Church. Um, someone involved had been involved in prison ministry. Um, and so I had a heart for people and their families who were behind bars and just kind of doing the next right thing where I felt like I was being directed. And uh deacon who'd been taking services to a prison close to where I lived was going on sabbatical and he wanted someone to cover his services and I believe in doing ministry in the in in your own backyard so I went down to to Joseph Harp in Oklahoma and uh to begin getting acquainted with the community and and fill in for um this other deacon and that's when I met Dave Woodward What year um, was this This was in 1995 no, 1998, 1998. Okay. And um, what was it like when you went in and you met Dave back then? Um, well, I, I had been in this facility probably 10 years before, and I remember being struck by being scared going in, but then being struck by, you know, these were people very similar to me. We, I would meet someone my age, and we had, you know, uh, common experience of history and you know they had families they were concerned about uh, I was remember being startled at wow, wow these are just people like me who have unfortunately done something pretty bad and and are now being punished right so so I was familiar with that so going into services was um, wasn't completely unfamiliar with to me um, and and I just, you know, it was something I really enjoyed doing. What was your first impression when you met Dave? Um, he he was kind of the inside coordinator for services, and we had a special event coming up, and and it was his job to do the paperwork, you know, to get the information and do the paperwork, so that it would be okay for me to come in at a different time. Um, my impression of Dave was he was he had a dry sense of humor. He was uh, very engaging in a, an appropriate way um, and very direct, very direct. He was never, he never hid what he had done. He kind of was upfront about that, but just like the other guys, just a nice guy. What did, what did he tell you about what he had done? Uh, he told me he had killed someone and he gave me kind of an outline of what happened and and he told me that he would just the smell of blood just gave him cause to stop um 
like I say, he, he was pretty straightforward. He felt it was important that I knew up front. When you say that the, the, the blood caused him to stop, to stop what? Um, when I say stop, I mean it brought him up short. It would be something that would um, immediately remind him of what he had done. And, you know, and, and he, he would say, before that happened that night, he would say he never, never imagined he was the kind of person that could do something like that, could take another person's life. Right. This is a, a, a complex case. I, I remember, I think, reading some of the trial transcript. For, the, for those listening, is there a way of sort of describing briefly, you know, what he told you about how he got involved in this situation and what happened? First of all, Dave was battling alcohol addiction, so that was a piece of piece of his story. So his judgment gets impaired. Um, he, <laughs> Dave, would avoid conflict at every turn, and even. He, it was real hard for him to say no, and so instead of just saying no, I'm not going to go there and do that, he would just kind of try and work his way around it. For listeners to understand, <laughs> how how did Dave get drawn into a situation where he ended up killing a man? What what happened? Oh, what he told me happened was um, he he had told me of his own abuse as a child and that kind of thing, and so when he heard stories of of children, teenagers being abused, he tended to rush in and try and rescue things. And that was the situation in this case, a woman who had kind of brought Dave into a work environment, um, told him that her daughter was being abused by her husband at the time. And and then he wanted to, um, and this was one night that, you know, husband comes home drunk, Dave's sleeping in the motor home, and the wife comes to Dave and says, can you help me just make my husband go away? He's drunk, he's abusive. And and what Dave didn't know and what came out in the trial was that she, and she would suggest the possibility of killing her husband, and what Dave didn't know, that he was not the first person she had approached about mm-hmm. doing this and paying money to. And Dave would always say, no, I don't think so, you know, that kind of thing. But then this night, things went a different way. He, I remember reading a bit about this. He, he came by the house, right? And uh, But then it turned uh, badly, of course. Uh, yeah, he, 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 as I understand it, because I have read the transcript. It's been a while. Um, he went by the house, you know, talked tough, um, he and, and the wife hung out for a little bit, and then Dave went into the motorhome to sleep. And, of course, he's drinking all during this process. And then the next thing he he recalls is he's awakened by the wife who says it's time, and and they go back into the house where the husband is sleeping. And that's when it got bad. And, and this, this turned into a kind of a struggle to death, right? I mean, this was a, I mean, a struggle to the death, yeah. yeah Dave. Yeah, uh, and I think Dave would say he would do the usual kind of um, rough the husband up a little bit, and 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 then the husband would go away. Well, this time the husband fought back, right? And Dave got scared. And and then what? 
uh, got scared. And, and part of the piece was there was this woman who was egging Dave on. And so Dave's trying to defend himself. Um, weapons would start appearing in his hand. Um, and then he knew that that the husband was mortally wounded at a point in time. That's and then they ended it. Yeah, I know this is not easy to talk about. Now, had Dave had 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 he had any problems prior to this? Any kind of a criminal record? No, no, he had not. And in fact, you know, I remember when I first met him, and, and when our relationship changed was becoming more than a friendship. I went to the library and I researched newspaper articles because I thought I need to, I need to know for sure. I know what David told me and I look and I remember reading the articles and seeing the pictures and the descriptions because it was a three week long trial and there was um, lots of coverage and trying to reconcile the person described in these newspaper articles with a person that I had met after the fact, sober, you know, graduated from high school or, or getting his GED and having been in a drug recovery program, you know, a very different person. I, I struggled with trying to reconcile that these were the same people. Yeah. And when what did you decide about what had happened having done all the research that you did on uh, reading all these articles and doing other research. What was your conclusion? My conclusion was that um, with the alcoholism, judgment very compared, very um, compromised. Um, I believe that the wife was manipulative and Dave was very susceptible to manipulation, especially when being told that there was an abusive situation. Um, I think the jury was right in recognizing his culpability was very different than hers. In the end, uh, Dave was, as we discussed, he was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life without parole. What about his co-defendant? She was sentenced to death. Um, She was able to get on appeal a retrial, and then she plea bargained for the sentence of life without parole. she did and, not go back to trial. Right. And so she remains in prison to this day uh, on a life without parole sentence? Yes. Yes. Now, taking this story further, you got to know Dave uh, while he was in prison over the next several years. And tell me about how this relationship sort of evolved. Uh, what what happened there? Um. Just an awareness of that this person was becoming more and more important. Again, pretty good, you know, good about keeping boundaries, not going to do anything that we knew we weren't supposed to do. And, and once um, we spoke to each other about our feelings, then then I resigned as a volunteer, which I needed to do. Um, and uh, uh, we, I started visiting in the visiting room. Um, as a and, friend. As a friend, as a friend, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it was interesting. Staff that had known me as a volunteer, um, I was seen very differently after that. I became, you, an, <laughs> I became invisible. I became invisible um, 
before there was some deference. You know, I wore a collar. Um, there was some deference. Um, people would chit-chat with me, that kind of thing. But once I became a family member, I was just somebody to be processed hmm. from, from, the in, from the outside. That must have been a startling kind of transition. Well, it was very interesting. I'm, I'm pretty good at stepping back and observing, and I try not to be judgmental. <laughs> um, you know, people are are doing what they do for all kinds of different reasons, and most of them I don't know about. But it was it was it was really interesting. <laughs> yeah. How did you How did you manage that uh, turning invisible? Did you do anything to deal with that situation? Um, I, I was I was okay with that. <laughs> right. I was okay with that. Um, um, yeah. And when did you sense when that you know Dave actually might be somebody you could envision spending the rest of your life with? Um, I think it was probably about a year and a half, two years afterwards. Um, and then we did have our visits terminated for a year and a half because there was a captain who recognized me as a volunteer and and you know thought I was breaking a rule and 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 that kind of thing and we we had to go through a pro it was going to be 3 years um cuz that's the time frame that volunteers have to stay away from a facility they volunteered in um, but just through my petitioning with the warden and just asking for a special visit and then um, kind of working through that process, uh, telling the warden I was not going to go above his head. I was going to deal with him because that's where I was going to be living. Right. Um, we got our visits back. After a year and a half. After a year and a half, right. And during that time, we talked on the phone and written letters. And when you saw him for the first time after a year and a half, had things changed? Or had they progressed? What, where were you? With well, them? they had they had progressed. They had progressed in that we thought we wanted to think about getting married. Who um, broached that subject? Uh, Dave broached the subject actually. How did he do this? What was the circumstance? Uh, in in a letter. Uh, gee, I can't remember if it was before or after. He he. It was in a letter after about a year. He mentioned it. I'm trying to see. And I think, yeah, um, he broached it, and I thought about it and and said yes. And then we we recognized that once we got our visits back, we needed to spend some time, you know, just kind of getting acquainted in a new way. Even though we've been writing and talking on the phone, we hadn't been in each other's presence. Just to back up, so so he asked you to marry him in a letter, and you responded in kind in a letter. Yes. This is very Victorian of you. Oh, it uh, is. Well, you know, <laughs> letters from prison is the last bastion <laughs> of correspondence. Yeah, that's for sure. And but what was your uh, reaction when you first got the uh, proposal? Were you surprised or or ready? I was ready. Yeah, I was ready. Yeah. So no hesitation. No. Now, how do you explain that? Because you know, as you knew at the time, he was in life without parole. In other words, he, no possibility based on the sentence that that he would get out. How did you picture all this? Your life going forward. 
I probably need to preface this with before I met Dave, I had been single, a single mom for 13 years and quite content with my life. You know, it was full, it was rich, doing good work, um, lots of friends and that kind of thing. But through a, a, a discernment process, kind of a sense of being called to the community, what kind of community, um, this is probably not a whole lot to do with what you're talking about. <laughs> but thank God for editing. Um, but, you know, being, what kind of community am I being called for? And discernment was uh, to the community of marriage. Okay. And then making a list of who I was looking for. And, right. and, and then, so my yes was immediate, but it was actually after a long period of discernment on my part of being called to that community, um, who, what was I looking for? I could choose, and and then when Dave asked, it was like forgot to tell God where I wanted to meet this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and did you, uh, Lynn? Did you picture that your life in marriage would be with you visiting Dave in the visitors' room for the rest of his, his or your life? Well, that is what we expected. That's certainly what we thought it would look like. Um, and, and there is community in the visiting room. Um, you, you get to know the same people, that kind of thing. Um, I dreamed about him getting out, but the, the, you know, the likelihood was very dim. We, we, um, got a hold of his transcript, had a lawyer look at it. The lawyer said, there's no chance. You've got to change the laws. Um, there's there's no way to do this. And okay. Well, okay. Well, now, if I could pause for a sec here. What does a wedding look like when you get married to somebody who's been sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole? What does that look like? It was wonderful. We... Um, well, of course, because we were both connected with the volunteer community, volunteer, all, any number of volunteers, we probably had 30 people at our wedding, which wow. doesn't happen much anymore. But because of, um, you know, I, I had a, a dress and a bouquet. It wasn't a typical wedding dress, but Dave was wearing his pressed grays and had a bouquet. Um, an Episcopal priest and an Episcopal deacon officiated. Um, one of the staff members sang a song. Um, it was a regular communion service. Wait, when you um, say press grays, are you talking about the uh, prison issue bar? Yes. Or, okay. Yes. The, at, yeah. This was back when the uniform was gray. Well, he right. could get it starched and creased. And I brought in a bow tie. Ah, you were a allowed gray, a bow tie. A, yeah, I brought in a bow tie. You know, everybody had boutonnieres and... Um, and we had, it was in the morning, so we had uh, fruit tarts from a bakery for refreshment. And there was a photographer, and it was videoed. And and uh, that was the last time we had communion together until after he got out. Well, now, before you go there, so you get married. You've now known Dave for how many years? Um, I've known him for three years. And we're in, what, the early 2000s? Uh, yeah, we got married December 15th, 2001. 
Or was, no, what, it was December 13th. My daughter was there. Now, at what point, Lynn, did you make it your mission to und, to sort of become an expert, if you will, and these are my words, in the criminal justice system, in the parole board, in the ways that all of this is done? Because what I've seen of you is that you are, in fact, really an expert in all this, and yes. you were meticulous about your note-taking and records. At what point did that all start that you began to really focus on helping Dave regain his freedom? He was able to get his sentence modified to life in 2012. This is a with, life with the possibility of parole. Life with the possibility of parole. In 2012, that happened, I believe it was in the early part of the year, and then it was in like October. Because he'd been in at this point in time, over 15 years, he was immediately eligible to be docketed for a parole hearing. Mm -hmm. And he made it to stage two in his first parole hearing. Wow. And and I remember it was the first one. I went down to Joseph Harp and, and uh, appeared, but I didn't speak for him. The pre, Our priest spoke for him. And after after he was denied... I was getting ready to leave, and the chairman stopped me and, and said, don't be discouraged. He's doing all the right things. Keep encouraging him, um, and hopefully it will be different next time. By the so way, that just, was for, a, just for listeners' edification, the fact that he got through the first stage in some ways is, can be the hardest, which is just a review of his case, as I understand it, on paper, right? Yes, yes. So yes, that's remarkable that he got through that first stage, uh, yeah. even though he didn't make it through the second uh, stage, which was the vote, I suppose, of the parole yeah. board in, in person, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, so you um, must have been encouraged by this point that maybe there was a chance. Yes, very encouraged, very encouraged. And then in 2000, that was 2012, then he could reappear again in 2015, and a lot changed, you know, the the composition of the parole board changed a lot, um, and we we submitted the package, and it was he got denied then at the first stage at the jacket review on paper only, and I'll always remember Dave talking about I, I don't know what to do you know he'd done more programs he'd done more good time he said I don't what do they want of me you know and and I remember thinking you know. The parole process has been so mysterious to so many people. I mm. said, you know, I'm thinking, I'm going to start going to the meetings. I'm going to meet these people. I'm going to start paying attention. I want to find out how is this supposed to work. Little did they know what they were up against. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for part two of the podcast with Lynn Christofferson. This podcast is sponsored by Republic Book Publishers, which brings you books tackling the important issues of the day and the new book Aftermath, When It Felt Like Life Was Over by Alec Klein. For more information, please check out republicbookpublishers.com. Thank you for joining us today. Please stay tuned for our next podcast involving stories from prisoners, their families, and those helping them find justice and redemption. And please subscribe to the Life on the Other Side podcast on iTunes.